Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 3. Going to be fi- finishing out the chapter this morning. Romans chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week, actually where we've left off for each of the last three weeks, picking up now in verse 27. Let's read together. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this good and this precious gift that you have given so kindly to us that we can actually know you in your word, that by your spirit working through your word, we can even be transformed, brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from death to life, transformed into the likeness of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray now this morning, Lord, that your word would accomplish its good work by the power of your spirits working among us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've said many times as we've been going through this book, the book of Romans is Paul's unfolding of the gospel and all of its height and depth and riches and beauty. And this gospel message, as we've seen in Romans, begins with such bad news, such terrible news about the human condition, that mankind is bound up in sin, Paul has told us, that mankind is under the present wrath of God, awaiting the fullness of the wrath of God in judgment, that, that we are totally inescapable of saving ourselves from any of this, of freeing ourselves from this. In fact, Paul has told us we don't even want to. Man doesn't even want to be freed from this, doesn't even want to be saved. But then as we came to this amazing paragraph that we've been looking at for the last three weeks, verses 21 through 26, Paul has detailed for us the amazing, beautiful truth of justification through faith alone, apart from our works. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, after having laid that out for us, after having spent so much time showing us the bad news, and then making this beautiful statement in this paragraph, Paul's now going to pause here and address some of the implications of the gospel. And this is so important for us to do. Many times we will hear a truth and we, we accept the truth as we hear it, but we never think about what the implications of that truth are. In other words, if this thing is true, what must also be true? Or if this thing is true, what cannot be true? Paul's going to do some of that for us here. 
He provides three conclusions that must be drawn from a proper understanding of justification by grace through faith. To put it another way, Paul is, has established for us that salvation comes as a gift of God's grace alone, not through our working, but through faith in Christ alone, and now he's going to tell us what that means for us. Three, three implications, three conclusions that he's going to show us in this text. The first is this, a proper understanding of justification by faith alone, because it's true that we are justified, made right with God by faith alone Boasting is excluded. Look at verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. So Paul says here, if God saves unrighteous sinners, never by their own merit, never by their own righteousness, never by their own works, but only by Christ's merit, by Christ's righteousness, by Christ's works, if it's never salvation through our own effort, but it's by grace alone, through faith alone, if, if that's how God saves, if it's really not because of what we've done, it's because of what he's done, then Paul says, what becomes of self-congratulation? Where, where's boasting in what I've done in salvation? Where's self-exaltation in salvation? Where is self-satisfaction in my own achievements in salvation? Where is pride in salvation? And Paul's answer is, it's excluded. In other words, it's shut out completely. It is cut off forever. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, this beautiful passage, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, but he says in verses 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. There's absolutely no place for taking any of the credit in our salvation. So, so you can't be justified freely by faith and then still try to take credit for it, and then still boast in it, and then still think of yourselves more highly than someone else. I'm more deserving of this than they are. Imagine that you had a house built, a beautiful, glorious five-bedroom, three-bathroom, whatever the dream house is in your mind. We're still just trying to figure out how we can get a garage <laughs> at our house. You have this glorious new house built, and you anonymously give it to someone. You, you give them this house, and and they, they get fully moved into this. It's fully furnished, the best of the best, everything. It's there for them. They just move in, and they're all set to go. And you come to visit them once they have moved in. And since you give it, have given it to them anonymously, they don't, they don't know that you even know that this was given to them. And you walk in the door, and you say, what a beautiful house you have. What a, what a wonderful, oh, the furnishings, all, everything, the detail, all of it. What a beautiful house. And they look at you and they go, thanks so much. I worked so hard on all of this. I just, lay, when I think of the blisters, when I think of the sweat that I poured out, laboring for this, building this, they, they begin to tell you how they've put everything that they've got into this and how proud they are of the quality of their work. How stupid would they sound to you in that moment? How arrogant 
and ridiculous they would sound to you in that moment. Because you'd be standing there knowing they hadn't done anything. They didn't even pick out the color of the carpet. It was a gift. They deserve zero credit for what's going on. Well, on a much greater level than that, the gospel says any boasting on our part in salvation has been totally shut out, totally cut off. It is completely out of place. It's had the door slammed in its face by what? What is it that has excluded boasting? Paul says, by what kind of law? So there's a law that has excluded boasting in salvation. What kind of law is it? Now, Paul has used this word law already in Romans, just as we come to the end of chapter 3, several different ways. He uses the same word in a, in a couple different ways. Earlier in this chapter, we saw in verses 19 and 21, the law with the definite article in front of it. It means Old Testament scriptures. But when the definite article is not used, and the word is just law, it can mean any collection of rules, any moral code that we would apply to our lives. And so how is Paul using this here in verse 27? He says, boasting in salvation has been shut out by a kind of law. But then he says, is it a law of works? And his answer is no. Instead, Paul says, boasting was excluded by a law of faith. And so the law Paul's talking about here is a principle. It's the principle of faith. It is a method, a basis. That's what excludes boasting. In other words, if it was by, if we could gain salvation by our obedience to a set of rules, by our obedience to a moral code, by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, if salvation was found in a law of works, Boasting would not be excluded. Boasting would be reasonable. Boasting would be expected. We would actually share some of the glory in our salvation. Even if God had said to us, look, you're undeserving, you're down in that pit, I'm going to do 99% of the work. You just have to kick in that last 1% then that 1% would be the thing that made all the difference. If God did 99% for everyone that ever lived in all the world, it's the 1% that separates everybody, and that's what we've done. There would be room to boast in that. And Paul says, boasting is excluded. There is no room to boast whatsoever in salvation. The gospel has no place for that kind of salvation where God does 99% and we do 1%. The gospel only allows God to be boasted in in salvation. So the gospel excludes any way, any principle, any method, any rule, any law of works in salvation whatsoever. The door is shut to all of that. Instead, to ensure that no one can boast in their salvation, the gospel puts forward faith's principle in salvation. And faith's way of salvation leaves no room for pride on our part. He says in verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. So remember what justification is. We've been talking about this a lot over the last few months. Justification is where the unrighteous person is given God's righteous status. 
It's not God looking at us and our pathetic attempts at goodness and then lowering the standard for us so that he can validate us. It's not like if we said, hey, after the service, we're going to have a quick dunk, dunking contest out back. And then we get out there and realize none, there's not a soul in this building that can dunk on a 10-foot rim. I think I'm correct about that. <laughs> we're going to make the rim five feet, and we're going to be able to do some great stuff, and we'll judge ourselves based on that. That's not how God does it. He doesn't lower the standards because of our pathetic attempts at righteousness. Not one bit. There's only one standard of righteousness that pleases God. There is only one standard of righteousness that God accepts, and that is his own righteous perfection. That's it. So justification is being declared righteous by God with his own righteousness. And that comes, the gospel tells us, through an instrument, and that is faith. It's the only way we can receive this righteousness. It's the only way we can receive this justification. And there's really only one kind of faith that justifies. Our faith must be the right kind of faith. It must have the right object. Faith in faith does not justify. The world is happy with the message, just have faith. They don't mind that message. They'll promote that message. Faith in faith doesn't save. Faith in some supreme being, some intelligent designer who's just not really involved, that doesn't justify. Faith in a somewhat vague, benevolent God who makes no demands, who stakes no ownership on our lives, no ownership on this world, that faith doesn't justify. No, it must be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus revealed in Scripture. Even more specifically, it must be a faith that embraces the bloody, sacrificial death of Jesus that was payment for our ransom, Paul has said in verse 24 of this same chapter. In verse 25, that satisfied the wrath of God. It's only through and by that kind of faith in that Jesus that God's righteousness comes to the believer as our own possession. And so the principle of faith, by definition, excludes any form of boasting. There is no way we could earn it. There is no way we could share a part in it. Faith's method of saving is diametrically opposed to pride. And Scripture tells us, as we just read from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 a second ago, that faith that is the instrument by which God's righteousness comes to us is a gift from God to us. We don't even get to have any of the credit for that. Faith is not our work. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that comes not because of our will. It comes because of His will. So it's so important, if we're going to get the gospel right, that we understand what Paul's teaching us here. The Bible never says that we will be justified because of our faith. It doesn't say we'll be saved on account of our faith. It always says we are justified by faith, through faith. 
It's the instrument by which we receive justification. It's not a work that we do in order to be justified. Faith is not something we do. It's an instrument to receive that which actually justifies the work of Jesus. That's the work that saves. I said this last week, we're saved by works. It's just not our works. It's Jesus' works. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, faith is nothing but the instrument or channel by which the righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. So it's not a work. It's not, it's not something that we do. It's not something that we produce that separates us from other people. Faith is a gift of God that receives the righteousness of Christ, and there is no room for boasting in ourselves in that. Faith's way of saving leaves no room for boasting. Second, justif- justification by faith alone, a proper understanding of it, will show us that it is for everyone. Justification by faith alone is the one way of salvation that is available to all. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Some have tried to make a big point of those, that, that, those words there in verse 30. The circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised through faith. And they've tried to make that there's some difference going on. That's not what Paul's doing. It's just two different ways of saying the exact same thing. He saves, he justifies by faith. So the second implica- implication of justification is its applicability to all. Now, I didn't say that it had been applied to all. It's applicable to all. In other words, not everyone is saved. Not everyone is justified. The Bible speaks of judgment from God. Those warnings are real. Hell is real. Not all people are justified. So it hasn't been applied to everyone, but it is applicable to everyone. In in other words, salvation by grace through faith can apply to everyone. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It can apply to all. It is the one and only way of salvation for anyone that has ever lived. There is one way out of this abyss, out of this pit, out of this wrath of God that is being stored up, and that is faith in Christ Jesus alone. Now that, friends, is not a popular message. That is not a message the world wants to hear whatsoever. It's actually a glorious message as Paul's presenting it. He's saying the door for salvation has been flung open for all who will come in faith. But all our world hears is you're saying there's only one way to be saved and that you've figured out what it is. No, God's revealed what it is. In his kindness, he didn't have to. He would have been perfectly just and righteous to condemn everyone eternally. He didn't have to do this, but the world hates this message. Our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to this message. I'm talking about our culture here in America is growing in its hostility towards this message. We live in a world that has its own sense of orthodoxy. It is ruled by its sense of orthodoxy. In other words, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. 
Our world is ruled by this. Even in the chaos we see going, around, going on around us, the world is still ruled by what it thinks is right and what it thinks is wrong. The, the problem is its standard is way off. It doesn't have that solid rock beneath its feet. In terms of public discourse, we call this the Overton window. The Overton window, it's the range of ideas the public is willing to have an open discussion about. So th these are the things we can agree to disagree about without thinking the other person's an absolute monster. Uh, and so the things that fall within the Overton window, we can agree to disagree about, and we don't have to hate each other. So maybe uh, many political issues. It's funny, I was, I was thinking about this this week, thinking there's such a small number of things that we can even talk like this about because if you disagree with anyone about anything, they think you're evil at this point. Generally, political issues, for instance, have been things that fall within the Overton window. We can talk about it. How much taxes should we take? How much should go to the schools? How much should go to, to this or that? We can talk about these things. Somebody could disagree with you, and they're not a monster. This is within the scope of the things in a civilized society people can have differing opinions on. Even if you feel passionately about it, you can, uh, you can understand. Somebody might disagree with me, and they're not the devil. But the things that fall outside of the Overton window are the things that we cannot disagree about and still consider each other good and decent people. So whether the Holocaust was a good thing or a bad thing falls outside the Overton window. To, to be pro-Nazi is to be a moral monster. We have all agreed on that as a society. We don't need any further conversations about it. We don't need to sit down and talk about the merits of Nazi culture and whether the Holocaust was a good thing or a bad thing. No further conversation is needed. If you're pro-Nazi, you are on the outside of civilized culture. It is wicked because it falls outside the Overton window. So here's the problem. In the world we live in right now, the world is changing very rapidly, especially in this nation of ours. There is an aggressive attempt to shrink that window so that fewer and fewer things are inside of it. And not just to shrink it, but to shift it hard left, aggressively left. And so Fewer things fall within the window. Things that we have always said people will disagree about fall outside of that window. So the, the list of things that make you a bigot in our culture has grown and grown and grown, and in the last handful of years has grown very rapidly. By the way, this is one of the clear goals of the Black Lives Matter movement. It is to shrink this window and to shift the window so that there are things we won't even talk about anymore. We can just call you a bigot and be done with you. Just this week, one of the museums that our tax dollars fund, a part of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., it's called the National Museum of African American History and Culture, published a chart. The chart was entitled, Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture in the United States. I just remember before I talk a little bit about this chart that we, we all helped chip in for this to be published by one of our government institutions. What this chart did was list some things that have been normalized because of what it calls white culture, but really what these things represent is forms of racism. Now to be clear, and we need to be clear about this, racism actually exists. And it is wicked. All forms of ethnic prejudice are wicked. God hates them. 
we should hate them. They rightly fall outside of that Overton window we're talking about. We need no further discussions about it. If you are a racist, if you have uh, some sort of ethnic vainglory that makes you look at someone different than you and think that they're less than you are, you are wicked. God hates that. You ought not think you are in right standing with God if you're harboring that in your heart. But what were the things on this list? What were the things on this list of systemic racism? Uh, One was the nuclear family, a home with a father and a mother in it. One was objective, rational, linear thinking. These are direct quotes, by the way, from the chart. Another was cause and effect relationships. If we say to someone, if you do this thing, you've got to think about what's going to happen as a result of it, that's it's a form of racism. Planning for the future is another one. Delayed gratification, which, by the way, is one of the most important things anyone can learn in their life if they're going to be successful. Many, many other things that we won't take the time to go into that are insane to be labeled as racist. But here's what I want to draw your attention to. And again, this is put out by a government-funded museum that our taxes pay for. Under the heading of religion, it said this, that Christianity is the norm, is racist. That anything other than the Judeo-Christian tradition is foreign, is racist. No tolerance or deviation from the concept of a single God is racist. So, so here's the world we're living in. To hold to the most basic teachings of the Bible, the first couple words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is an aggressive attempt in our culture right now to put you outside of polite society if you hold to that. More than any other time in our nation's history, The world has quite a history of persecution of Christians and hatred of God. More than any other time, though, in our nation's history, the simple proclamation of 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That statement is not just hated, it is considered hate speech by many in our culture. So we've got to hold fast to what Scripture says, what God has revealed to be true in his word. Because Paul says here, there is no other God. There is no other way of salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter and John proclaimed of Jesus, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is so important because there is absolutely no other way that a person can be saved. And so if we bow our knee to the culture because we are afraid they are going to call us mean names and be hostile towards us, we are shutting the door for salvation in people's faces. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. The life, no man comes to the Father except through.
through me. This is universally true. It is true for all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, to to use the language of the book of Revelation. And Paul applies this now to the greatest division in his day. We live in in a world, in a culture of great division right now. But Paul applies this to the greatest division of his day. He doesn't shy away from this. He applies it to Jews and Gentiles. Again, remember, in the Jewish mind at this time, there are only two categories of people in the whole entire world. Us, the insiders, and them, the outsiders. Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. And Paul says the gospel destroys that division. He says here, God justifies the circumcised by faith, and he justifies the uncircumcised through faith. These two parallel statements, meaning it's exactly the same for everybody. There's only one way. It's to be justified by faith. And so salvation by grace alone through faith alone is for everyone. Man is always trying to create divisions, Ethnic divisions, social divisions, political divisions, gender divisions. We could go on and on and on with all the divisions we're trying to create in our world right now. But the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys such sinful partiality. It has no place. There's not one way for the Jew and a different way for the Gentile. There's not one way for the black and a different way for the white. There's not one way for the rich and a different way for the poor. There is no distinction, as we saw earlier in the book of Romans, when it comes to sin. All are condemned together. Down in that pit, Paul even points to that that religious moralistic Jew who thinks he's not quite down in the mix with everybody else, and he says, there's no distinctions There's also no distinction when it comes to the way of salvation. It is the same for all. There is one way. Paul says here, it's because there's one God. God is not divided. Because there is one God, all of God's people are made one in Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And if that's true, then it tore all other walls down. There is one body of Christ. There is one church of Christ. Not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. Not a black church and a white church. Not a Mennonite body and a Baptist body and a Methodist body and a Pentecostal and a Presbyterian body. There is one body of Christ. There is one true church comprised of all of those who have been justified as a gift of his grace through faith alone. And this second implication of justification, that it is for everyone, is vital for us to hold on to today. We must hold on to this. There are many who are not just seeking to sow division. We expect the world to cause division. But friends, we need to know that there are many who are seeking to sow division in the body of Christ. What a wicked thing to do. Godless ideologies that come from the world, things like critical race theory, things like intersectionality, if you're not familiar with those terms, you're probably happier for it. They've taken root in the American church. These ideologies are rooted in atheistic Marxism and socialism. 
They thrive on creating divisions between people by, by putting them into separate categories. You, you are in this category made up of your own characteristics. You're, you're, you're white and you're a male and you're middle-aged and you're middle-class and, and you're married and you actually identify as a man. What a weird thing to do. This is your group right here. So this is the list of things you're allowed to talk about, and these are the things you don't get to talk about. Because you don't know what it's like to be a black woman who identifies as a poodle. <laughs> Only she gets to talk about those things. That's her group. <laughs> we laugh, except that's actually the nonsense that's happening. This is the world we live in. We're we're creating divisions between people, even in the church of Jesus Christ, by categorizing them into identifiable social markers. Most prominently is ethnicity. Race, to use the world's term. Even though Scripture is perfectly clear about this, there is one race of mankind And if we want to talk about any separation whatsoever, you are either in Christ's race or Adam's race. That's the only time the Bible puts a separation associated with the concept of race. You're either in Christ or in Adam. You've either been justified by him or you still stand condemned. That is it. Even though the church, even though the gospel, the Bible teaches this, God has been perfectly clear from Genesis to Revelation, we are seeing these things infiltrate the church. When we look at the world around us, we see this divisive doctrine play out in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is sweeping through our world in the last few years. Right now, never more popular than it it is right now. This is an organization, by the way. Now, those three words, and I said this a few weeks ago, if we just heard those words, Black Lives Matter, we should all say amen, and we shouldn't try to come back with a, no, all lives matter. No, amen, let's just affirm it. Great. But those three words don't just mean that anymore. There's an actual organization. An organization with stated goals. You can go to their website. I went to their website. Their stated goals. In this church, we have a statement of faith. They they do too. Their statement of faith includes things like disrupt the nuclear family. That is a stated goal. This world that thinks... People are better off with a mother and father in the house. No, our stated goal is we're opposed to that. Dismantle cisgender privilege. Again, if you don't know what cisgender means, God bless you. Let me ruin your life just for a moment. Here's what it means to be cisgender. If you're a man, you actually think you're a man. And if you're a woman, you actually think you're a woman. Did you know that that now puts you in a category called cisgender and that some people turn their nose up at you for thinking that that is common sense? So one of their, their goals is dismantling cisgender privilege. In other words, a man who knows he's a man shouldn't be treated any more like a man than a woman who says she's a man. We should be actively against people being mistreated and abused. But Christians can never go for that. That's wickedness. Isn't Jesus himself who said God created them male and female? 
Another one of their stated goals, bring freedom from the grip of heteronormative thinking and instead foster a queer-affirming network. Friends, these are things Christians can have no part in. Their, their end goal is to drive a deep wedge between people so that we will always be identified with our own groups, be they ethnic, social, economic, sexual, whatever it is. It's to give it as many, many labels on a person as they can to put separation between us. And Christians should hear this and say, this is wickedness. This is opposed to the gospel. But let me tell you, it has infiltrated the church. It's not infiltrating the church. It has infiltrated the church. Now, we expect this from liberals. This stuff has been a part of the Mennonite church for generations, the Methodist church, certain forms of Presbyterianism, and we could go on and on, sadly, listing these things. Some of these churches that are closed, I heard one mega church that said they're not opening again um, for sure until 2021, and I'm thinking, good, I hope you have no one left in your church when you go back, because I know what nonsense you teach. This stuff has been around in liberal churches, but let me tell you, this has infiltrated the conservative church. The Bible-believing church, the evangelical church, has been infiltrated already by this godless system, and it is just continuing to spread like a cancer. And friends, this is another gospel. It's a false gospel. We must reject it. Now, we sit here kind of insulated at Maple Grove Church. Most of you are hearing this and you're like, I can't even fathom that conservative Christians are buying into this. Just know it's coming to little towns like Topeka too. And those of you that have kids or grandkids in school and in college, this is all they're getting, even in their Christian college. This is it. This is what they're getting. This is the gospel that is being preached to them. We must reject it. No matter what the world says to us, no matter what names they call it, because it's a false gospel. The true gospel is that which proclaims a salvation that is found in Christ alone. One that removes hostility and partiality and unites the church of Jesus Christ as one body. John Stott said, all who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. That's what Paul's doctrine of justification by faith is all about, he says. See, if we'll rightly understand justification by faith alone, we will know that that's nonsense when we hear it. We will know that we ought not look at one another with partiality. We'll know that this gospel is for all people and, and all can come to Christ in faith. Third, then, quickly, Justification by faith alone upholds the law. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So since salvation is on the basis of grace and faith alone, not works of law, it's inevitable that someone's going to hear Paul teaching this and object to it. He's going to say, so you're telling me the law is worthless. You're telling me that it's meaningless. Since we're not saved by law, since we're not saved by a moral code, then we should be able to just throw out any moral codes. The language of our day that you hear is, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. 
That's usually an expression someone is using to tell you why they're not going to do something the Bible tells them to do. That's the objection that comes. Paul's answer to this is not casual. He answers it in the strongest way possible. He says, by no means. We've seen this statement before in Romans. Means may it never be. Some translations translate it, God forbid. It's the strongest negative statement in all the Bible. You cannot say no any more forcefully than this. So the argument comes, we just throw the law out then, it doesn't mean anything, and Paul shouts no as aggressively as possible. In, in fact, he says, just the opposite is true. Salvation by faith through, by grace and faith establishes it, upholds the law. In other words, the law is now seen, as we understand this truth, the law is now seen in its proper place. First, justification by grace shows us that the law is perfect. The law is so perfect, it is so holy, the standard is so high that absolutely no one could ever live up to it. The law's not brought low. The bar hasn't been lowered. The requirements haven't been changed. The law and its holy requirements remain in effect. That's why the gospel says all are sinners. All fall short of the glory of God. The law hasn't been changed. And the law requires punishment for sin, and the gospel upholds that punishment for sin. God didn't do away with the punishment for sin. He didn't brush it under the rug. That punishment, as we saw last week, was poured out on Christ. One of the most popular pastors in America today is named Stephen Furtick. He looks like a male supermodel. That was not necessary. He said this, the law required you to die because of your sin. But God broke the law in order to save you. He broke his own law for love. I saw that getting shared all over Facebook when he said that. And you could sum that statement up with one word, blasphemy. Blasphemy. God did not break his own law. The gospel does not, is not a, a, a message of God breaking his own law. God doesn't wink at sin. He didn't look at us and go, you're so precious. I'm so infatuated with you. I'm going to break my own law just so you can squeak in. Our sin was judged in Christ on the cross. God upheld the law. The gospel upholds the law. We saw this last week as we zeroed in on that concept of propitiation, the wrath of God satisfied in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel upholds the righteous standard. It upholds the punishment for falling short of that righteous standard. Next, justification by Grace is more, though, than just having our punishment meted out to Christ instead of us. It is also receiving the comprehensive righteousness of Christ. So in Jesus' obedience, the rewards for obedience to the law were upheld as well. In his, in his substitution on the cross, the punishment for disobedience was meted out. But in his obedience, the rewards come as well. Christ received the reward for perfect, flawless, righteous obedience. And by grace through faith, that reward is given to us. What Martin Luther calls the great exchange. 
The wrath of God poured out on him in our place and his reward given to us, his righteousness given to us. And finally, justification by grace brings us into conformity to the law. You see, there's no such thing as a genuine believer who has received the gifts of justification and saving faith who is unchanged by that work of God and just remains exactly the way they were before they were saved. No, no, the righteousness that God gives in justification actually has the power by the Holy Spirit to transform us into brand new people with new hearts and new minds and new desires and a new ability to walk in righteousness and obedience. So that argument that comes, if you believe we're justified not by our own works, not by our obedience to the moral standard, people are just going to throw that moral standard out. That is not understanding the comprehensive work in salvation of creating a new man. As a believer, faith in Jesus Christ will not let you be lawless. But instead, faith in Jesus Christ establishes a proper place for law to stand in your life. So obedience to the law does not, cannot, will not save you. But salvation always produces obedience to the law. It's a sure fruit of genuine salvation. So we're not redeemed by obedience, but we are redeemed to obedience, to live lives of obedience. The, the same grace that, that God used to lead you away from trusting in your own works for salvation is the exact same grace that will generate in you a zeal for good works as a living fruit of that salvation. So the gospel doesn't nullify the law. It upholds the law. It puts it on its proper foundation. And friends, all of this, all these implications we've spoken of this morning, all of this is a gift from God. In all of it. We have no room to boast because this is God's work, not our work. It is not of ourselves. It is not our work. It is the work of God in us. And God alone gets all of the glory for salvation. But if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone, if, if he is not your redeemer, if he is not your propitiatory sacrifice, if you're not justified by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, then you need to know this, the law condemns you. God's wrath remains on you. I, I pray that in hearing the gospel today that the Holy Spirit gives to you, the gifts of repentance and saving faith. I pray that you will call out to him for that. Call out to him for that salvation, that you'll turn from your sin, that you'll trust in Christ alone. If you will call on him, he will save you. Salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ is for everyone. And for those who are justified by grace through faith, let it humble us as we meditate on these things. Let it empty us of our pride. Let's not boast in anything but Jesus Christ and his cross, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
Let's glorify and worship the God who made us, the God who saved us as an act of such overwhelming grace and kindness. Let's live for his glory alone and let's commit ourselves in these dark and hostile days to making this true gospel known. No matter what anyone else has to say about it, all the more so and again, the things I shared this morning, I even hesitated because I thought I don't want us to be the people who look around at everyone else and go, nobody's getting it right like we're getting it right. Now the gospel should humble us so that we don't think like that. Anything we ever get right is because of God's kindness to us, undeserved. But we should be incredibly motivated, all the more when we look around and see many churches have turned from preaching a true gospel. Instead of sitting back and wagging our fingers at them and shaking our heads at them, it should motivate us. It should put in our souls the fire of urgency to proclaim the true gospel. God knows who are his. He adds his blessing the proclamation of his gospel, and may we be a people who proclaim it loudly and clearly, speaking the truth in love. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, thank you for this gracious gospel. Lord, we are so undeserving of any kindness from you, and yet you have showered us with kindness. Lord, thank you for these truths that we have seen in your word today that our dear brother Paul has committed to writing for us, inspired by your spirit, so that we can know not only the gospel, but know exactly what it means for us, know what it has done in creating one people of God, know, knowing what it has done to cause us to give all the glory to you in salvation, and knowing its call and empowerment to live lives of obedience to you. I pray, God, that you would work these things in us, your people, by the power of your spirit. Lord, that we would bring glory to you every day of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.